Hey, kia ora, everyone. Lovely um, to be here. Thanks for letting me um, take over the Antioch service. Um, uh, Bishop Peter, great to have you here, Bishop Peter, whom I love dearly, <laughs> for the record. Um, but um, uh, maybe I was being avoidant about farewells, and maybe Bishop Peter could tell, because Bishop Peter said, I'm not accepting your letter of resignation, unless you have a date of something somewhere. So uh, Joe very kindly um, uh, was open to sort of this space being there. So I really appreciate, um, appreciate that. And as you know, I've spent a lot of time um, here at Antioch, and so uh, we've had a good time together, and so I kind of feel like being welcomed with family. So it's a you know, really lovely place to be. So thanks for uh, welcoming me. Um, this is what I did yesterday. I had, to, uh, I had a wedding of a friend, and I said to him, how, how, how many groomsmen do you have? And, uh, and he said to me, he said, 10. And I said, <laughs> and then I thought, you know, 10 isn't quite enough to be funny. 12's funny. 14's funny. But 10 is hard to read. And I laughed and I looked at his face and he was like, yeah, cool, eh? <laughs> and so choice anxiety is real for some people, you see. And so, isn't that an amazing sight, just to see, them, to see them all there? And I kept saying, are they all here? And he'd say, yep, yep. And then I'd count them. I said, there's only nine. Oh, we've lost one. So I sort of like... <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's, it's funny the things you kind of end up doing uh, before, you, uh, before you finish up in a place. Um, you know who Kim Hill is? Kim Hill from RNZ, uh, Radio New Zealand. So you sort of like... Um, for those of you who don't listen to the radio, a radio was a device <laughs> that um, you sort of would tune into and it would um, transmit through the air um, and came into a magic box. And so Kim Hill is probably the most famous radio broadcaster in New Zealand. And on Saturday, she comes and talks more than the people she interviews uh, every Saturday. And a few years ago, uh, Kim Hill from Radio New Zealand was interviewing this guy, a guy called uh, Thomas Thwaites, who was then a 34-year-old researcher from London, and he spent a year creating prosthetics that would allow him to walk around on all fours um, as a goat. And it's fair to ask, why would anyone want to do that? Um, and, uh, and she asked him that, and he said this, I suppose it was because... Uh, it could be fairly difficult, depressive, and just stressful being a human being. Uh, I initially wanted to be an elephant, but it wasn't going very well. <laughs> and so I visited a shaman, and she said, you're an idiot. So I decided to be a goat. <laughs> and, uh, and so the results um, are this a book called Goat Man, How I Took a Holiday from Being Human. And um, he spent three days roaming the Swiss Alps. Um, in his prosthetic goat outfit. And he, uh, and he said, my goal was to take a holiday from the pain and worry of being a self-conscious being, able to regret the past and worry about the future. But being a goat wasn't a completely carefree existence for Thomas. He said, I suffered quite a lot as a goat. Because of the slope, I was constantly falling over. <laughs> And, of course, I had to eat grass, which he hadn't thought about. Uh, also, the goats didn't seem to like me very much. Sometimes I thought they were really going to try and attack me. They have particularly dangerous horns. But I later realised that they were just letting me know there was a hierarchy and I should know my place. 
Isn't that profound? It'd be nice to be able to say, now, whenever I get worried or down, I just think, Thomas, be more the goat. But that's one of the difficult things about feelings and being worried and depressed or whatever. It's difficult to rationally think your way out of it. Later on, on his website, he said, I guess I tried to become a goat to escape the angst inherent in being a human. Now, um, I guess that might... uh, sound like the kind of behaviour of someone who is um, losing his mind. But Thomas is actually an incredibly normal person, uh, sane person, intelligent, so fiercely intelligent. You know, he was working in some ways uh, uh, as an academic and was realising that some of the things he was studying wasn't bringing all the answers that he'd hoped when he was was studying. And uh, the more I read about his quest to become a goat, and his reasons for doing it, the more I realise that he's really just trying to figure out the stuff that all of us are trying to figure out. Uh, Even though he he goes about it in a very eccentric way, um, and it's a good book, isn't it? I mean, it's a good story if you could do it. Even though prosthetics to be a goat take a lot of work, you know, so it's not the most straightforward thing. I think his story illustrates some of the difficulties that many of us face as we try to make sense of life. Because if it's not to goats, then where should we turn for answers when we have the big questions? You know, questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What's my calling? And I think that's probably one of the main questions I've heard people raise over the 10 or 11 or 12 years. I'm not sure how long I have an employment contract. Uh, in my in my role, um, but I've been working with young adults for quite a while, and and but I often get the sense that these these questions are lurking implicitly or explicitly in the background. Do you know what I mean? Either people come straight out and say, "I don't know what to do with my life," or they're asking other questions, and when you get underneath it, they're like, "I don't know what to do with my life." So they're kind of always lurking there. And it's been a big part of my own wrestling too. Where is God leading me? What is my core? What is my vocation? There's a famous um, quote, probably the most famous quote on vocation I know, uh, comes from this guy, Friedrich Buechner. And he says, Your vocation in life is where your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. So to explain that, he's saying your greatest joy is over here and your world's greatest need is here, and that your vocation, a good indication will be where you start to see those things coming together. I think a lot of us often think our vocation is just our greatest joy. I think he's trying to say, no, it, ha- it has to fit into something of the world's need as well. And um, I've used that sentence, and people have thought I'm very smart, and they go, that is just profound, but it often hasn't left them any better off. <laughs> you know what I mean? They go, oh, that, that's great. Uh, Thanks. That's so good. I'm going to go ask someone who can actually help me um, with something. I'm quite good at those conversations, actually. Um, But uh, there's a little kind of diagram that I've found has been infinitely more helpful in my own life and in in other people's lives when it comes to kind of trying to wrestle with uh, what our vocation might be, what might be a good place to start. I love that question. What is my calling that doesn't involve getting me dressed up as a goat, but rather involves, I think for a lot of us, doing the mahi to explore three big areas in our life. Um, Because I think God often leaves clues on our vocation within our life. We just don't take the time to sometimes stop and and look and see what they might be. So I drew this on a whiteboard, uh, proud to say. And and 
it's kind of such an elegant and simple way just to get started. I'm not saying that if you answer these three things, you have all the answers in life. But man, you can get a long way by engaging in them. And one of them is just the question of like, what are you, um, what are you passionate about or what do you love? Have you heard that idea of flow? Where do you experience flow or where you just feel most fully alive when you're kind of I'm probably engaging in the thing that I should be doing? Do you know what I mean? That kind of sense of passion. So that's, um, that's one thing. Uh, a second part is around your strengths or your talents or your giftings or even your skills. Do you know the things that you're good at? Uh, and the last one is around the world's need uh, and where there's actually a sense where your heart breaks for something. Does that make sense? Where you actually begin to feel a sense of the world's need and where you might uh, want to participate um, in that. So you might think of it as uh, passion, compassion, and how you're fashioned. That's a, that's a way if you like cheesy sort of rhymes. But, um, but often where you find those three things intersect, you start to get some pretty good clues over what your vocation might be. And it's really interesting. Sometimes you get into um, a job or a line of work and you stop experiencing the joy. And you need to retrace those things and say, why did I get into this in the first place? Does that make sense? And you actually realize there were some things later than that. So I want you to have a little chat with the person next to you. My most famous sentence in all sermons. Have a little chat with the person next to you. Over, um, which, of, which of those do you go, actually, uh, I feel really clear on what one of those are. And maybe there's one where you go, oh, I feel a little fudgy on how I'm engaging in that right now. So I'll just give you a few minutes. Have a chat with the person next to you over what you think of that little diagram there. Off you go.
All right. All right. Um, I mean, I, I, I think this is something I've done a lot of reflection on in my own life. Um, uh, partly it's because of the people I've worked with, vocation and what you should do with your life is a big part of it. Do you know? And I, I mean, I remember um, I've had lots of conversations with students, uh, particularly to, and I mean, uh, there's a, a certain kind of engineering student. And I mean, I, and I'm, I'm saying this with respect, and you know, can you see my face is just not judging at all? Just, <laughs> there's a certain kind of engineering student um, that their counsellor said, oh, well, you've got a math, you should be an engineer. And so they find themselves studying engineering, and then at the end of the degree, they don't know what they should do, so they get a master's. And at the end of that, they get offered an internship, and they're moving to Auckland. And one guy said, I've never in all these years ever stopped to ask if I ever thought I should be an engineer. That question was never came up. And so it's really easy to find yourself on a path where you've never been able to stop and go, well, I, I wonder what I'm made for. And the idea is not to get stuck in that, you know, not paralysis by analysis, thinking if you get that perfect. I think vocation is very dynamic and it changes in life stage. But I think it should be considered. You know, what is, what is God calling me to? Because uh, God sometimes doesn't call us to very easy things. And what is God calling you to requires having some ears to start to kind of listen into that. So I've been thinking a lot about, I guess, my calling a bit. And, um, you know, as you pack up and as you move home, you start to think a bit around... Um, how God's made you, and how does my calling and your calling intersect? You know, all those questions start to kind of pop up. And uh, for me, uh, I've started thinking about, and I think it's really worth exploring when it comes to our calling, what Bible characters do we identify most with? I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you look at the Bible, but actually, are there any characters where you identify really deeply with who they are? Um, I know, because uh, it's worth exploring. Scripture's rich with these most wonderful characters, and some of them I loathe. I don't know if there's anyone in the Bible whom you hate, where you go, that guy just gets on my nerves. Uh, you know, there's certain things about David, which are a real struggle that he's the hero. You know what I mean? There's some things where you're like, it's hard sometimes to like David. Um, uh, but for me, um, uh, the person I feel like sometimes it's like looking in a mirror for me is probably Peter. Um, I love Peter. I didn't love him when I was a kid. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize uh, Peter's complexity. But there's a whole lot of things I love about, I love about Peter and I sometimes see uh, within myself and within my own calling. So um, the passage that we have is the passage around uh, the miraculous catch of fish. And so to orientate you where we're at, uh, Jesus has died, is resurrected, and is popping up in places, freaking people out. Right, because I think sometimes we forget, you know, that you is he walking on water at this bit, or what, where does this happen? So it's such a fascinating little story. Um, uh, this one, it would be, I think, it's hard to make up. So uh, what happens is Simon Peter, uh, Thomas, a few of the other disciples. I love this. Simon Peter says this: Jesus is dead, and he's probably a bit upset, quite disappointed over how the story hasn't gone how they thought it would go, and he says this. I'm going out fishing. We'll go with you. <laughs> right? I love it. Because he's going back to what he knows. Going back to fishing. You can imagine that if something traumatic happens. I just want to do something I know. I'll do something with my hands. And a bit uh, angry. Uh, what a waste. I'm going back to fishing. I guess I better get used to this story. And so, um, uh, so they go out in the boat, but that night they catch nothing. And... Um, Early in the morning, 
So you imagine they're out there, they've caught nothing, they're disappointed. But the freaky thing is this, early in the morning, Jesus is standing on the shore, but the disciples don't know it's Jesus. And he, a bit like the gardener, you know how Jesus appears and, they, and, and there's a sense the disciples don't quite know that it's the gardener, uh, that the women don't. And he calls out and he says, friends, haven't you any fish? Which is a stupid question. No. Throw your net on the other side and you'll find some. And I guess they'd think, what does this guy know? But they say, well, we might as well. Uh, and they did. And they catch this huge amount of fish. Here's where, what I love about this, right? Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Hey, like the penny drops. It's the resurrected Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter hears this, uh, heard him say it's the Lord, he wraps his outer garment around him. So he basically strips off. He jumps into the water and he leaves the other disciples at the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred y- yards. And when he got to Jesus, uh, he saw that there was a fire burning and they were eating fish. And none of them say, so later on in the story, they all gather around Jesus. None of them say, hey, Jesus, they all just sit around eating. I think that's so funny. Do you know what I mean? Because they don't know what to say. So they go, this is pretty freaky. This is pretty weird. So they don't have anything to say. I love this story for a number of reasons. And this is me totally projecting who I am onto it. And I'm very comfortable with that tonight. Um, I love, uh, for me, my calling resonates deeply with this idea of the church casting our nets on the other side of the boat. uh, And calling unexpected and unlikely people to come and follow Jesus. And so I love that, where they were fishing where there was expected places that they fished on the other side and that they caught a great haul. And for me, I'm often wondering, there are people whom we think would not be open or are not interested in this gospel, but that actually if you cast your net on the other side, it's really surprising what's going on. So that's a big part of my call, and so I I love that in this story. But I also um, identify and resonate with the personality of Peter. I think of his impulsiveness and the ridiculous way he throws himself towards Jesus and the way he sort of strips off and dies into the ocean to swim to Jesus while the other disciples must have rolled their eyes. Like, I mean, that, like, in some ways he looks like the hero. The other disciples were like, this again. You know, he was the guy that walked on water and sunk. This old thing. Like, it's the same old Peter. He's always doing this crap, and he's doing it again, and he's leaving us here with all the fish, and he's just, you know, he's off in the water. You know what I mean? And they would be rolling their eyes and have left him to the hard work and stripping off in public. There's something really vulnerable about that. There's this vulnerable aspect of it. And so I guess I resonate with his, um, this impulsive passion of diving headfirst towards a strange idea, that idea of kind of jumping first and thinking later. I really, you know, I, I, I love that, and, uh, and, and I find myself in that. So for me, Peter, with all of his flaws and all his betrayals and the cock crowing three times, you know, I will never deny you, oh, I denied him, you know, all of that stuff, the big talk and the skinny dipping, he's like the biblical character. I guess I resonate most with. And I'd, I mean, it's a, I'd, I'd love you to just have a chat with the person next to you over. Is there any character when you're in, when you're in Scripture where you go, that's a person who I resonate deeply with? Because for me, it's Peter. I mean, I wonder if there is one. one I don't expect you to be into Peter because he's a bit weird sometimes. But what's, maybe just have a chat with the person next to you for a minute. Is there a biblical character that pops to mind straight up? It might be Jonah. I don't know who it is. But have a little chat with the person next to you if there is uh, someone that pops up for you. Just give you a minute on that. You can say Jesus if you like.
All right. Hey, um, oh, are there, are there, I'd just like to hear two or three names of many biblical characters out there, so I know I'm not totally crazy. Any, anything anyone would like to share? Just a name? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the kid who killed Goliath. That is a very popular story. I like it. It's good. What else? What else have we got? Anyone got a... Martha? Yeah. Great. Esther? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's so good. Cool. Anyone else? Yeah. Cool. Great. I think it's it's a way of reading scripture. I think we sometimes don't think about. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't realize these are sort of characters that actually they're there for a reason, and they often help us uh, kind of make sense of our own calling. Um, anyway, on Friday we had these uh, two big trucks uh, pull up to our house and uh, pack all our stuff into containers. Do you know that they? I, I walked into the laundry and they'd taken a washing machine and a dryer, which they shouldn't have. And I said, "Is there any way to get it back?" And he said, "No." No, no, there's no way to get it back. It's like, what? He said, "What are you going to do?" I was like, "Yeah, I'd like it's back on me." Yeah, what am I going to do? There's no trying. Washing machine. It's like that's gone for four months because it's going into storage for a while till our permanent place uh, uh, pops up. Um, and it's confronting seeing how much crap a person can own, isn't it? Lord have mercy. But uh, we also had a lot of fun going through our garage and clearing it out. And it was a real trip down memory lane. And I uncovered some really strange objects. Um, this was a great one. This is me when I was a child, which I, you know, hard to sell. Um, Fred enjoyed uh, quite a few of the different kind of combinations that you could sort of find. He goes, Fred Exotic. He was into being Fred Exotic. Uh, there, there was Sarah's cassette collection, because Sarah was from Gore. My darling wife was from Gore, and so there was a single. <laughs> you don't hear that word very often anymore, a single. Um, it's like that if you need to, I can explain that later on. It's similar to a radio, but a more advanced, <laughs> more advanced technology. Um, I love this one, daily thoughts for school administrators, I found. <laughs> Well, it's just big, so many questions. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Sarah found a, my old band, Clown Dog T-shirt, which is, I think we, we had 20 made of those. There was an APRA check, which is royalties for Clown Dog. So this is an APRA check. We got, I never banked it. It was for $5.72. It's how much we made from being played on the radio, which we can talk about. But that was a lot more than we got to go on Spotify. So. Got this one. Oh, yeah, Angler Candy. Had that made. There's a great little badge trying to publicize Anglicanism to Pentecostals. Uh, a failed evangelism, but it was still, still an attempt. Found this religious clip-up CD-ROM. <laughs> Got to say, single radio and CD-ROM in the same sermon. That feels very satisfying. And I also came across this. Anyone who went to Easter camp, someone sent me this. Spanky, Pi Day Live. It's like, oh, yeah, I really want to watch that. Oh, yeah, put that on. I have not played it. I threw that in the bin. I was like, I have no interest in that. I also found this. Um, I found uh, while I was going through things this um, interesting email request that I got uh, to Spanky. Got more Canterbury Art Exhibition. Spanky, I was wondering if you'd be interested in participating in an exhibition we're having. Your role would be as a secret performer. The performance I have in mind for you is as follows. A reverend wears a t-shirt with an image of traffic on it to the opening of an exhibition. Immediately after, the reverend takes a clump of dog fur and drives. 
the reverend ties the dog fur to the first sheep that comes into view on the drive. If you're interested in participating, I'll provide you with a T-shirt and a dog fur. I don't have access to a car, do you? You would be paid a fee of $100 performance. Let me know if you have any questions. <laughs> kind regards. That's, kind of, that's the kind of emails I get from people. That's sort of like how, how things go. But, um, but in the garage amongst all that weird stuff, I also found a bunch of photos and posters from past th things I'd done in my role working. Uh, for the past 12 years. And I've always enjoyed trying out new things, playing with new ideas, experimenting. And as I looked over these long-lost items in my garage, you start to get quite nostalgic and teary. And you start to realize that God's been really good to you, eh? Like there's things that you forget. And you go, actually, God's been really good to me and really kind. And there's these things that you do and you move on until you go through your garage and you find these um, amazing things. And I've really appreciated that I've had... Um, uh, Bishops, Bishop Peter and Bishop Victoria, who knowingly or through ignorance have given me enough rope to play with new ideas. It's very hard to tell the difference between that. And I've been blessed to work with some amazingly passionate and talented people. Sammy, uh, we've hey, been working for years together, had a good time. Um, uh, John Day, I remember John Day. He was, he, you know, he was the uh, vicar here, and we had amazing, a lot of love for John. I've had so many great uh, people, as well as the youth pastors and the young adults that I've got to work with. Um, and I've been blessed uh, to, oh, and of course, oh, through all this, my long-suffering wife Sarah. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Uh, who. We've always done these things together, and she's always been there to mop up some of my um, emotional mess afterwards when things didn't go well. Do you know the funniest thing, the worst day of my life, one of the worst ones, was um, when we had 200 people turn up to Salt and Light, and I came home, and I was just in a terrible depression uh, in front of the fire, and she was like, what's wrong? I'm like, there's only one way to go now. We're going down. You know, and she was like, that's a really interesting way to view a good night, speaker. <laughs> but I thought I might end, um, I'm going to end tonight really fast by offering, um, I was, it's really hard to know what to say in kind of a sermon when you're kind of talking around your last thing. Uh, but I thought I might do a brief vocational presentation that I like to call Spankmur, a <laughs> slightly self-indulgent retrospective uh, and I basically, I found some things in the garage, and I thought I'd use those things in the garage to, to do some reflection on some interesting things that, uh, that, that, that we did uh, over those things. So I've got 10 things I'm proud of, five mottos, and one biblical passage that I've found good news in, and then I'm going to be done. So um, let me see. Since I'm an insecure, self-deprecating Kiwi, I'll keep it quite snappy. So um, I found this magnet, uh, which was the first community that I was involved with, age 25, called The Kitchen, uh, which I've got, I've got some slogans here. When the powers of discontent Christians combine. That's what I called that one. Um, uh, then uh, we had The Kiln, which is this sort of kiln when it was ending, which I think I would say, if I was summarising that, trying to make Anglican call via night prayers since 2010. Uh, we had Society of Salt and Light. Uh, oh, there we go, here. Uh, which was, um, we had kind of a bunch of resources. I found that in my garage. And I, put, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I'm going to say it because it's my last night, so who cares. I said, take hot chocolate, heavy theology, and horny Christians. <laughs> Put them in one room and mix, which is true. I mean, that's the reality of it. That was the truth of it. But there are a lot of relationships that came out of that. Uh, we had the Thirsty, the Thirsty Workers Guild, where we were brewing craft beers and talking about faith and work. And great to have Alistair here, who helped so much with that. We had the Festival of Salt and Light. 
which was sort of Easter camp for hipster big kids. Look at that. That is an amazing picture. That's what you did back then. You put a mat in the grass with some books. And it just was all, and, and Jesus was like, I like this. Um, had uh, un, uh, the unplugged silent retreats, three days of bonding over shared trauma, just like a family Christmas lunch, <laughs> as I'd always say, which I think we probably had about 250 young adults um, go through on uh, silent retreats. Uh, the Peel Forest Eco Monastery, uh, and I, this is my one I remember. For the last time, Edith, it's not a long drop, it's an eco toilet. We used to have a lot of fights. She says, That's a long drop, Dad. It's like, No, it's an eco toilet. It's an entirely different thing. Um, I've been involved with a thing called the 21 Elephants podcast, which is the unique story of two white men telling other people every thought that crosses their mind, because that's what the world needs right now. Um, uh, this is the community Vacatio I've most recently been involved with. Really special to have so many Vacatio people here. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Then come and pay $30 a week. Um, <laughs> And uh, the last one is Date My Mate. I found, I found all the Date My Mate registration forms, which I couldn't put up because I didn't want to embarrass anyone. But um, trying to kickstart church growth since 2011. I remember that. That was amazing. It was a room full of single Christians. And oh, that's right. So, yeah, well, I know. It, didn't, it worked for some people, it didn't for others. So, you know, you do what you can. Um, I was thinking around the mottos, what would be my mottos that I probably ended up saying the most or the ones I most want to live by, and uh, I have these five, um, would be this. If we're going to fail, then we may, well, may as well have fun while we do it. You know what I mean? I'm always like, come on, guys, probably go bad, but let's try to have some fun. So um, I think that's one for me. I think failure is really important and to kind of embrace it and give it a go, but then you've got to have a way to kind of try to enjoy it. It's not that I like failure, but let's try to have fun at least. Um, this is pretty crap, but I guess we shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> and I've been into some very rough situations, and I have said that, and I think it has taken, back, taken sometimes people aback, but it's really a challenge to say there's something that we can do with this, so I wonder what it is. Uh, and so uh, this is an add-on phrase. Because after all, if you're in the basement, then you may as well have a look around. And that means, I think, in terms of emotional health, if you're down under there, why don't we have a look around and see what's going on? Does that make sense? So we might as well have a look around. And so I think that's been a big, big, thing, big thing for me, working with people in those situations. I think, oh yeah, this is a big one for me. I think God cares infinitely more about who you're becoming rather than what you're doing. And I put the I think, because I understand that there's lots of critiques of it, but honestly, people become so obsessed with their performance. And I think we forget that God's profound interest is in their character. Look, God is interested in what you do, but he's really interested in your character, I think. And so uh, I think this is a, that's a, it's a big question for me, for people, is who are you becoming in this? Um, next one. I think a life of meaning comes at great cost. So I think when people are living really comfortable lives and they go, I just wish I had more meaning. It's like, well, do you think this is going to be a free lunch? Because if you want a life of meaning, it's going to involve pain and risk. So if you want a life of meaning, it will come at great cost, but you will have a purpose-fulfilling life, but it will hurt. And I think that, for me, has been a big wrestle, do you know what I mean, over what that, what that looks like. But I think that's it. And the last one for me is, and I just have to say this over and over to people, and probably to myself, you are a profoundly beloved child of God, even if you're struggling to believe that for yourself right now. And I think a lot of the time I've had to hold faith for people who've struggled to have faith. That's a weird relationship. But you just, you know what people don't get enough of? They don't get much encouragement anymore. And that often you just have to speak encouragement over and over, I think, with people. So 
The last thing I'd say is this. I guess over the years I've found myself working with a generation in which many young people feel a sense of being homeless in life, hurting and hopeless. But for me, my great hope is found in Jesus, the fullest revelation the world has ever seen of God. It's him who I seek to build the foundations of my life on. It's him who I long to have as Lord over more and more of my life. And my hope has been that young adults in particular, with all their issues around commitment and church, might find a way to draw near to this Jesus and to the good news he offers. And so there's a passage of scripture that I've found resonates deeply with me, but not just me. I've, John 3.16 used to be the big passage when I was growing up. I feel like this passage more and more the young people I share it with. You can see their hearts long for it. Do you know what I mean? You can see their hearts open and long for it. And so I'd like to finish basically by offering this passage as a sort of prayer and a sort of blessing over uh, everyone who's been kind enough to journey with me over these years. So I just invite you to be still for a moment. You might like to close your eyes. as we acknowledge that the living God, the Spirit of God, the Wada Tapu, is closer to us than our own breath. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.